So Lord, bless our time as we study your word and help us be attentive. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, as we study the book of Isaiah, keep in mind that Isaiah is prophesying his ministry. We're going to actually see him be commissioned to ministry here tonight as we move into chapter 6. But he is ministering during the reign of, uh, at the end of Uzziah, that we'll talk about in just a little bit, through the reign of Hezekiah, and then on into Manasseh. And it is believed that he would minister for about 50 to 60 years that during the reign of Manasseh, Manasseh was a terrible king. He had plunged the nation deep into idol worship and uh, Eastern mysticism and occultic kinds of practices, just as Ahaz did. And we're going to talk more about Ahaz because Isaiah is ministering during the reign of Ahaz. But it would be Manasseh, it is believed, that uh, would have Isaiah killed. He was sawn in half. And that's mentioned there in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith that there are those who were sawn in half, and Isaiah is believed to be one of those that, that indeed he was martyred in that way. But Isaiah is ministering during that time where his ministry is for a little while at the beginning to the house of Israel. He begins his ministry in about 740 B.C. Now we know that eight years after he is commissioned to ministry, that it would be those tribes, uh, the uh, tribe of Gad and Reuben, half of the tribe of Manasseh on, on the east side of the Jordan River, they ended up going off into captivity by the Assyrians. And then 10 years later, the Assyrians come in and they take the whole house of Israel off into captivity. So then we see that Isaiah, his focus is on Jerusalem and on Judah and bringing the word of the Lord to them. Now, we have seen in the first four chapters that Isaiah is indicting Jerusalem, the men of Jerusalem, the daughters of Zion, the leaders of Jerusalem, and the, the house of Judah in their sin and disobedience, their idol worship. And, and even though there was a form of religiousness, and that's what you've got to remember that they were bringing the sacrifices, they were saying the prayers, they were observing the feast, but it was mixed in with so much pagan worship and false worship that the Lord said, I'm tired of it. I'm not going to hear your prayers. I'm weary of it. And so we need to keep that in mind because today, as I don't believe that the United States replaces Judah or Israel, like some will say, but there is that template that overlays what we're reading here. And there's application to be made for our own nation. There's application to be made for our, our own families. There's application to be made for this church family. And we can certainly learn from it what happens when we get away from the word of the Lord and the truth of the Lord. There can be a form of religiousness. There can be, you know, those things that are taking place. It can be during a time of prosperity that is economically and culturally stimulating. But the Lord, what does he have to say about when a group of people, a nation, when, when uh, a family gets away from the truth of his word and the truth of his ways. And so that's what we're going to be learning here. So in the first four chapters, we saw that here's Isaiah indicting Jerusalem and Judah. And that's going to continue as we're in chapter 5. Let's begin to read it as we read. Now let me sing to my well-beloved the song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. 
He has dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and has also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And as we begin the chapter, here Isaiah tells of the story of a vineyard. And of course, we know that this vineyard is speaking of God's people, speaking of Israel. We'll see that in verse 7. But uh, this, this vineyard has advantages. And in other words, it belongs to a loving God. Uh, his title here, well-beloved, I like that. The well-beloved has this vineyard. He loved his people. And that's the thing to keep in mind as we go through this. And even though it speaks about the anger of the Lord, it was a righteous anger because they had turned against him and his ways. And, and we're going to see the atmosphere of what was taking place in this society, the injustice and the violence and the greediness and all of this. It angered the Lord in that righteous anger, but he still had a love for his people. So the well-beloved has this vineyard, and, and this vineyard had advantages. It, it was planted on a very fruitful hill. Um, the ground is carefully prepared. The vineyard is planted with the choicest vines. It was protected with a wall and with a tower, and provision was given for the grapes, the fruit, to be uh, processed. It had a wine press, in other words. And so with this in mind, of course, the expectation would be that it would bring forth fruit, good grapes. But what ended up happening, as we read in verse 2, is that it brought forth wild grapes or bad grapes or poisonous grapes. They were good for nothing. And so any of us that, of course, we're at the time of the year where uh, most of us have picked our gardens or those of you who work the land uh, that are farming, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it in the springtime. There's preparing the, the ground, there's you know planting the seed, there's irrigation. Uh, even those of us who have gardens, many of you brought in the tomatoes and, and um, things like that to share with others. But when we prepare a garden, we prepare land to grow something, we expect it to produce a crop. We expect a harvest. We expect, um, you know, fruit to come forth from uh, whatever it is that, that we are doing. And it's disappointing when it brings forth, you know, weeds and thorns and thistles and um, when it really should bring forth that which is good. Well, here the Lord had done everything for this vineyard to really produce good grapes, and that's what he expected, but it did not happen. And so what we're going to see in God's disappointing vineyard here, that he's going to speak about his people. You know, for you and for me as Christians, all things have been given to us that pertains to godliness. You know, the Lord has saved us. We've been forgiven. He has given us of his Holy Spirit. You know, we have the gifts of the Spirit so we can minister to others and the gifts that the Lord gives to us. And, um, and I was thinking about this because I was reading in my own devotions through 1 Corinthians where Paul's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And it really dawned on me that uh, the greatest gift is the Holy Spirit himself that has been given to us, that dwells in our hearts. We have his word that's been given to us. We have his promises that are given to us. And we have the body of Christ. We have each other to be able to encourage each other and minister to one another and pray for one another. So all things have been given to us that pertains to godliness that you and I, that is the Lord's desire, that we would bear fruit in our lives. Now people ask, what is fruit? We know that the fruit of the Spirit is love. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love. And Jesus in that upper room that we're looking at in John, you know, or in Luke's gospel, in John's gospel, he would say uh, to his disciples in that upper room that they will know that you are my disciples for your love for one another. So the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then the Bible also talks about the New Testament, uh, talks about fruit is worshiping him, the fruit of our lips, giving praise unto the Lord. There is fruit for service unto the Lord, giving unto him as we give of our resources. So all of those things, you can do a study on what is fruit that the New Testament talks about that the Lord desires to produce in us. And the way that we produce fruit is by abiding in Jesus Christ. Because that's what Jesus said in John chapter 15. He said that I am the vine and you are the branches. And as you abide in me, you will bring forth fruit. Matter of fact, Jesus in that chapter, as you read it, says not only abiding in me personally, staying connected to, staying close to, As you do that, you're going to bring forth fruit. And as you abide in my word and as you abide in my love, you're going to produce much fruit and that fruit is going to remain. And also, Jesus said, as you abide in me in my word and my love, that you're going to have a fullness of joy. I think that every single one of us in this room, that if I asked you, do you want to be joyful in life? You would say yes. I don't think any of us would say, you know, I really want to be miserable in life. And I don't want to have joy. We do. We want to have joy. And there's all kinds of books that are written on the secret of having joy and a joyous life and all of this. It's not a secret. It's very simple. Even David would write in the Psalms, in your presence is fullness of joy. And then Jesus comes along and he says that as you abide in me, you'll have a fullness of joy. You want joy? Stay close to the Lord and abide in him and you're going to produce fruit. So here, this vineyard was supposed to bring forth fruit, but it didn't. It brought forth poisonous, wild grapes, grapes that were no good. And so now he begins to indict the the inhabitants of Jerusalem in verse 3, and the men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? You know, sometimes people will say to you and to me, God's done nothing for me. Have you ever heard that? And I think, really? Because God gave his son for you, who went to the cross to die for you, to give you eternal life and forgiveness of sin and right relationship with the Father. So if anybody ever says to you, God's done nothing for me, you can explain to them the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ who went to the cross, that's what he did. He did the work on the cross for you. He's done everything for you. The Father giving of his Son because he loves you. So we want to be able to answer those who, who, who say, well, you know, uh, God hasn't done anything. And here the question is being asked, I have not, what have, you know, that I have not done in it, this vineyard. Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned and break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay its waste, and I shall not be, it shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns, and I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain on it. And then in verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah 
are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. And so the nation of Israel is the vineyard, which was given so much by the Lord, and they only brought forth those wild grapes. They were corrupt, and God would bring judgment on this unproductive vineyard. And of course, it reminds you, doesn't it, some of you may be thinking, as you've been with us in our study of Luke's gospel, that Jesus in chapter 20, you see, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on, uh, in the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the beginning of that Passover week. And the people were moved and they were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the next day we know that he would go to the temple, right? And he rebuked the religious leaders there in Luke chapter 20. And he said that you have made my father's house, which is a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. He was quoting from the book of Isaiah, actually. As Isaiah, we will see, talks about the house of the Lord is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And that's what Mark records that Jesus would say. And he overturned the money changers' tables. And he drove out those who sold, you know, the sacrifices. And, and the religious leaders were very upset at Jesus. And so the next day, as he's at the temple teaching the people, here come the religious leaders. And they confront him publicly. And they say to him, by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? Come right into Jerusalem like that. You know, and, and the people are ascribing that term of Messiah to you. They were so upset about that. And then coming into the house of the Lord and, and causing that ruckus and overturning money changers' tables and dry, driving out those who sold sacrifices and, and rebuking us. They were furious with him. And so who gave you this authority? And Jesus said, listen, he would talk to them and ask them about the baptism of John. Was it from God or was it not? Was he just out there doing his own thing? And they refused to answer him because they were afraid of the people, that the people would stone them. And as they refused to answer, Jesus then turned to the people and he began to tell that parable of the wicked vine dressers. And he told that parable, and you might recall that there was the owner of a vineyard who leased it out to vine dressers, and he, the owner, went to a faraway country. And at vintage time, when it was time to collect what was the owner's, he sent a servant there to collect it, and the vine dressers would beat him up and, and then run him off. And so he sent another servant, and they did the same thing. They beat up that servant, and they cast him out. And then he sent a third one, and they did the same thing to him. So what did the owner of the vineyard do? In his grace and in his mercy and in his patience, he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son, and they'll respect him. And um, what ended up happening is that those vine dressers, when they saw that the son came, they said, hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him that the inheritance may be ours. And Jesus would ask that question, what's the owner of the vineyard then going to do? And he talks about how judgment would come to them. And those religious leaders knew exactly that Jesus was making reference to this chapter, Isaiah chapter 5. That you guys, you religious leaders, are divine dressers. And I am the heir. And I am the son who has come. And I know what you're up to, that you're going to have me killed by the end of the week. And we know that Jesus, as he's speaking to them about it, 
that it would cut to their hearts. And he said, I'm the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And so here that reference being made to Isaiah chapter 5 is Jesus here um, is, is saying, I'm the heir of the vineyard, you vine dressers, that you are supposed to bring forth good fruit. Israel was supposed to do that. And listen, so are you and I. This church is to bring forth good fruit unto God. And the only way that we're going to do that is by honoring him and staying close to him and abiding in him. So here Isaiah begins in chapter 5 to give this series of woes. He gives a series of six woes from uh, verse 8 to the end of the chapter. And we're going to look at these woes, what was going on in Judah and in Jerusalem that was keeping them from bearing good fruit. What they were doing that produced wild grapes or poisonous grapes. We see the first woe in in verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house and they add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. So woe to those who, as he addresses their greediness. There was greedy real estate buying that was taking place house to house, he says. And remember that when God says woe, it's bad news. Jesus would use that term. He gave a series of eight woes there in Matthew chapter 23 concerning the religious leaders. Woe to you, scribes and and Pharisees. And and he talked about their corruption. He talked about their greediness. He talked about um, how they were so far from God. Well, here we see this series of woes given to the house of Judah, to, to Jerusalem, also upon Israel at this time, God's people. And he says, first of all, there was greediness. Now, Micah, who was a contemporary of Isaiah, writes in his book, chapter 2, that the people were coveting fields and they were taking them by violence. And they were seizing houses and oppressing others and taking others' inheritance. Now, inheritance was a big deal in ancient times. You need to remember that. You didn't take somebody's inheritance. We see it was taking place in the house of of Israel. Matter of fact, speaking of vineyards, in 1 Kings chapter 21, remember that story? There was Ahab. He was the king of Israel. He was a terrible king, a wicked king. He had plunged the nation deep into Baal worship, and he had a wife named Jezebel. And Ahab, in 1 Kings chapter 21, he goes, as he has his palace there, his home in the Jezreel Valley, very fertile. We've been there. Uh, we go there every time that we go to Israel. It overlooks the Valley of Jezreel. Another name given to it is the Valley of Megiddo. And it's a very fertile, very beautiful place. And there is Ahab. He has his house there. And next to his property is a guy by the name of Naboth. He has a vineyard. And it is Ahab who wanted Naboth's vineyard. He wanted to turn it into a vegetable garden. Now, does that really make sense? I mean, a vineyard is valuable, and you want to turn a vineyard into a vegetable garden, but that's what he wanted. So here comes Ahab. He goes to to Naboth and says, I want to buy your your vineyard, and I want to turn it into a vegetable garden. And it was Naboth that said, God forbid that I would do that. This is my inheritance. You don't do that in Israel. I am not going to give up my inheritance. 
So Ahab the king goes back home. He goes in his room. He lays on his bed. He begins to cry. He begins to whimper. And his wife Jezebel, who was a very violent person, she had killed many of the prophets of God there in Israel, but she comes and she sees him on his bed crying. She says, what's the matter with you? And he says, well, I wanted to, to buy Naboth's vineyard, but he won't sell it to me. Whimper, whimper. And she said, you know what, I'll take care of it. So she leaves. She comes up with this plan. And she, what she does is she invites Naboth to this, to this feast. We're going to honor you. But she sets him up to where when that happened, there would be certain men that would come and accuse him wrongly of something that was deserving of death. And, the, and they would take him out and they stoned Naboth. And that's exactly what happened. She set it all up. She sent the letters out with his seal on it, uh, came up with this plot and this plan that Naboth would be put to death under violence and deception and all of this. And when it took place and Naboth was killed, she went back home to Ahab and said, listen, get off your bed, quit your sniveling and, and your you know, whining and wipe your nose and go take Naboth's you know, vineyard. And that's what Ahab did. Well, the story doesn't end there in 1 Kings chapter 21 because Elijah the fiery prophet comes to him. And goes to Ahab and says, Ahab, you have done this wicked thing. Here's the thing, guys, that is interesting about that. I don't know how much Ahab knew what went on. Because Jezebel, his wife, set up the whole plot. She set it up. She sent out the letters. She had these men that she hired to come in to accuse him wrongly and then take him out and put him to death. She's the one that put that plan into action but Elijah comes along and says, Ahab, you're being held responsible for what took place. And men, husbands, leaders of your homes, listen. You are going to be and I'm going to be held responsible for what takes place in our homes. And if we are ones that, you know, we're whimpering and we're crying because we just have to have that little vegetable garden. And we are causing others to act in a way of greediness or deception. That can happen. Listen, whether you lead your family, whether you lead a business, whatever the case may be, it even happens in ministry because you want that vegetable garden and you're whimpering and crying because you can't figure out how it's done. But it leads others that you are ministering to, that you are to lead into action to where they are doing wrong, you're going to be held responsible for that. It is so important, men, and whoever you are, that you're leading in any way to learn to be content and to be one that is an individual of integrity and honesty before the Lord. Because our actions will affect our families, our wives, our kids, our employees, those who we are discipling. And if we are in a funk because we're not content, it's going to cause them to move in a way that's going to probably be contrary to the way that God wants them to act. So we need to be careful. Ahab, you're in the doghouse and you're a dead man. 
And what's going to happen is you're going to get killed and the dogs are going to come and lick up your blood, which ended up happening as you read the next chapter as he died in war and he was shot in his chariot and the dogs came along and licked up his blood out of the chariot and Jezebel, same thing. And she was thrown out of a window and the dogs came up and licked up her blood as well. Nice life, Ahab and Jezebel, all because you were greedy. Listen, greediness is something that, as Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that leads to all kinds of sin and temptation and ends up becoming a snare. There's nothing wrong with having things. There's nothing wrong with if you got a business or you are working to want to do the best that you can to to provide for your family. I don't think that any of us, if your supervisor came in tomorrow and said, you know, you're doing a great job. I think I'm going to give you a raise. Any of us would reject that. We'd be happy. That would be a blessing. But it is when we have a love for things and we make it a priority and it's the love of money that is the cause of all kinds of evil and the root of all kinds of evil. When we are greedy and we put that as a priority, that's what we are doing in life, it is going to be a snare. And you're going to have a miserable life because if you have a heart of greediness, it is never enough. It is never enough. You know, they've asked those who are wealthy, you know, um, you know, when is it enough when you have the millions and the billions? And sometimes the answer is just a little bit more. I want a little bit more. You're never satisfied. And that's why the scripture says learn to be content. And I think that we need to learn that in life, don't we? So the first woe that will keep you from producing good fruit unto the Lord is greediness. Let's continue in verse 11. The second woe. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. The harp and the strings, the tambourine, the flute, the wine are in their feast, but they do not regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of his hand. So the second woe, woe to those who are seeking pleasure and drinking and partying endlessly uh, all day long. That's what they live for. That's what they desire. Really not celebrating you know, celebrating everything, but everything but the Lord. So woe to you. And if you're one, any of us that pursue the worldly pleasures and things in life, then you're not going to produce fruit unto God when he isn't the priority for you, the priority to live for him and to please him in life. And then we see in verse 13, therefore my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he who is jubilant shall descend into it. And people shall be brought down, and each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God, who is holy, shall be hallowed in righteousness. And then the lambs shall be fed in their pastures. And in the waste places of the fat ones, strangers shall eat. And so here they shall be brought down, those who delight in worldly things and pleasures. And in verse 18, we see the third woe that is given. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity, that is emptiness, as sin as if uh, with a 
cart rope, that is. Um, they're dragging it, uh, all this emptiness and falsehood, uh, like a, a cord that pulls a cart. And they say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come, that we may know it. So here, the third woe, with empty words, they pull sin to themselves, and with empty words, they show contempt for the Lord. They thought they knew better than God. We see that today. There are those who, who have empty words. We, we see it a lot today. We see it in the news. We see it with, you know, there's all kinds of information that is out there. It's all around us. We have all the talking heads, you know, on the talk shows that endless all day long on TV and cable networks and, and all these things. And some of those things are, can be interesting and informative but a lot of times, it's just a lot of empty words and all the voices that are out there. And we're trying to filter it all. Listen, you need to filter it through the Word of God. And, and Paul talks about useless babblings and things like that. And I think that it's wise for us that, that we be careful uh, how much we're taking in and who we're taking in. But ultimately, that we're taking in the Word of God. And so here there are those that, that empty words, they pull sin to themselves. They, they think they know better than God. And, and we see that. And it goes along with the fourth woe that we see in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. By clever deception words, deceptive words, they exercise sin. They call sin good. I really believe that Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20, we are seeing it be fulfilled even in the day in which we're living in. We live in a society and we live in a culture that loves to call evil good and good evil. We see that. That we're being pressured, you and I as Christians, to accept that which is sin, to celebrate it, to embrace it. And listen, it's difficult days in which we're living in. And when you and I stand on the word of God and say that God says this is sin and this is darkness and this is bitter and this is wrong, we're going to have a culture that's going to come against you and me. And I really believe, listen, that we as Christians today, every single one of us, are going to have to make a decision whether we are going to stand on the Word of God and we speak the Word of God in love. Listen, we speak the Word of God in love. But we speak the Word of God. And we're going to have to make a decision whether we're going to stand on the truth of God's Word or we're going to compromise God's Word. And we even see it in the church today. I think that all of us that that perhaps you were in a church or a mainline denomination or even we're seeing it more in evangelical churches that are getting away from standing on the truth of God's word and beginning to compromise, you know, the truths of the scripture given to us and knowing uh, that what God says is good, um, that we are to stand on it, but we begin to, to accept and and bring in culture and begin to bring in, you know, the, what society says is good for the sake of we don't want to be seen as intolerable or we don't want to be seen as being, you know, hateful or any of those things. Listen, the most loving thing that you can do 
is give the truth of God's word to others. But you will be persecuted for it. And you will be one that there will be those that will come against you. So we all got a decision to make because this verse 20 is being fulfilled today. That in our society that we call evil good and good evil. We put darkness for light and light for darkness. We put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. But I want to encourage you because I really do believe that there are those who are looking for truth. I really believe that there are more out there than we think, that they look at what society says is to be embraced and which is good. They look at the craziness of what is adopted and accepted, and they're looking for truth. And you have truth. And we can tell people that there's a loving God who sent his son to die for them and loves them and wants to save them. And that this book is a book that is absolute truth. But unfortunately in the church, more and more Christians are saying, well, we don't believe in absolute truth. We question the, the um, validity of the scriptures, this um, inspiration of the scripture, infallibility, inerrancy of the scripture. That's all being tossed out of the church today more and more. As I said, even in some evangelical circles of the church, we're not going to talk about sin. We're not going to talk about you know, sinful lifestyles and immorality. We're not going to call sin, sin. We're just going to stay away from those things. Listen, we can't give the gospel unless we talk about that the problem is there's sin. And that's why Jesus came, to take care of the sin problem. And we don't have to be obnoxious about it. We don't have to ram it down people's throat. We don't have to be hateful, but be truthful. And people are looking for truth. I think they're really looking for hope. And I know that is me being in the public eye, that as a teacher I'll be held at a stricter judgment and I have a decision to make whether I'm going to stand on the word of God or not. I'll tell you what, you go through the scriptures chapter by chapter and verse by verse, you got to hit these topics <laughs> that isn't popular in our culture. But it is truth. And it's going to bring that abundant life to you and to me. So we live in a culture that very much is described here in verse 20. And then verse 21, we see that the sixth will, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. And actually the fifth one, prudent in their own sight. Of course, as we know that um, there are those who... Um, are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to the men mighty drinking and wine and woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. And so number five and number six, the woes there um, in their drunkenness who take bribes, the greediness, kind of summing it all up in their drunkenness, doing what is wrong. He said, woe to them. And then in verse 24, therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and a flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will ascend like dust, because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Listen, never despise the word of God. Never despise it. It isn't we as Christians, you, you read and you say, amen, amen, amen. Ooh, that part I don't like. 
and that's not going to work for me in my life, whatever that might be. You see, we don't just pick and choose what, what we want to accept. And again, that happens in the church. You know, you, you have those churches that are progressive churches. And, you know, they'll quote the Bible. They'll, they'll quote certain verses. And they'll say, we love to teach on the Sermon on the Mount. But they dismiss much of the scripture. Never despise the word of the Holy One of Israel, as he says, or the Lord of hosts. The, the Lord of hosts and his law, his word given to us. In verse 25, therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled, and carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. And for all his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Verse 26, he will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they shall come with speed swiftly. No one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep, nor will the built on their loins be loosed, nor the strap of their sandals be broken, whose arrow are sharp and all their bows bent, and the horses' hooves will seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. In verse 29, the roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of its prey, and they will carry it away safely, and no one will deliver. And in that day, they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened by the clouds. So essentially, as we end the chapter here, there's going to be complete judgment. But I was thinking about this as I was looking at this again this afternoon, that it says in verse uh, 26 that the Lord will whistle to them the ends of the earth. That's interesting. And surely they shall come with speed swiftly. And no one will be weary or stumble among them. Nor, no one will slumber or sleep. And he's describing what's going to come. Of course, the Assyrians would come in and take the ten northern tribes off into captivity. The Assyrians were brutal. They came in, and most villages or towns that knew that the Assyrians would come in would get up and they would leave. And they would try to escape because the Assyrians came in and they would torture you. They would skin you alive. They would do unspeakable things. That's why Jonah, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. It wasn't that he was afraid to go. He didn't want to go. Because they did terrible, terrible things. They were so brutal. And they came in swiftly. And same with the Babylonians to the house of Judah in 605 B.C. But I was thinking about this, that he says here that they don't slumber or sleep. And they're not weary. They don't, any of them stumble. What we're going to see, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more in detail on Sunday, is Jesus, and most of you know the text, that when he goes into the garden, he takes his disciples and he said, you guys watch and pray with me. And he goes and he begins to pray in his passion and in his agony, sweating great drops of blood. And we'll look at that prayer of redemption. But then he comes back and he says, you guys are sleeping. He catches them sleeping. He says, you know, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. He goes back and he prays a second time, same words. He comes back, here they are snoozing again. And he says, oh, can't you watch and pray for one hour? You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He goes back and he prays a third time. 
the, you know, same words. He comes back, and here they are sleeping again a third time. And he says, you know, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. And then he says, arise for my betrayers at hand. And I imagine that as Jesus, the third time, that he went to the disciples, and he said, you know, as they're sleeping, oh, you're sleeping again? Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. As he's saying that, and he says, arises, he's been watching those soldiers cross the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives on the slopes there because they come with weapons, with swords, with clubs, and they came with torches. And here's that line of torches, a detachment of troops, according to John's gospel, which means 600 soldiers that come to Jesus. He's watching them coming across the Kidron up to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the disciples are sleeping Here the nation was sleeping. They were not taking heed to what was being said. And the Lord says that the day is going to come where your enemy is going to come against you swiftly. And they are watching and they're not going to stumble. I want to remind you and me that we have an enemy that is watching us. And it would be later on that Peter, he was the one that was in that garden. And we already talked about that he's the one that's boasting that, Lord, even though all these other guys may run away this night, not me. I will stand by you. I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to go to prison. He was willing to resist any attack that came against him except for the attack of the Sandman. He falls asleep. And while they're sleeping... And snoozing, the enemy was coming and plotting and planning. I'm going to close with this. I actually wanted to go into chapter 6. We're not going to get there tonight. That we've already been reminded, as Jesus said, make sure you take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves spiritually. And all throughout the New Testament, we are told as Christians to be watching. That we are to be sober. We are to be vigilant. We are to be watching. Be watching. Be praying lest you fall into temptation. And I hope and pray that none of us here, that our spiritual lives are marked by we're snoozing and we're sleeping spiritually and we are lazy because I got to tell you this, the enemy's plotting. He's plotting how you can get a foothold into your life. And that's why it's so critical that we be awake spiritually. Listen, it's a warning to me and it's a warning to all of us and it's a warning to this church. That the enemy would love nothing than to shift you like wheat, even as he, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan's been asking for you. And he wants to beat you up. He wants to chew you up. He wants to spit you out. He wants to do you in. And Peter later in his life would say, hey, you be sober and you be vigilant. I think he learned a lesson because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for you to go to sleep spiritually because he's going to be plotting and he's going to be planning. And then it's going to be easier for him to come at you. And here, you know, Jesus says, Arise for my betrayers at hand. And they wake up and they've been sleepy, and all of a sudden the enemy was upon them. Don't go to sleep, folks. Stay awake. Be sober and vigilant. Keep in the scriptures. 
Have a devotion life. Be seeking the Lord every single day. Be in prayer. Submit to God. Resist the devil. And the promise from James is, and he, the devil, will flee from you. But don't go to sleep. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this chapter, even though we only did one chapter. Lord, that's what you have for us. And so many lessons here of, Lord, what can happen to us that we end up not bearing good fruit unto you. You have given us salvation and forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ. We have a personal relationship with him that you dwell in our hearts, that you give us the power to live for you. You've given everything to us that pertains to godliness in Christ Jesus. You've given us of your word. You've given us of your promises and the body of Christ here that we can encourage and, and edify and build up one another, provoke one another for good works. And so, Lord, I pray that as we abide in you, in your love and your word, that fruit would be produced in our lives. You promised that it would. That none of us would be asleep spiritually. And Father, I just pray that tonight, if there's anyone here that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, he is your salvation. And we want to give you that opportunity to come to him. Because Jesus, as he told that parable of the wicked vine dressers, he was the son that would be put to death. But he, he died for us. It was ordained before the foundation of the world that he would come and die for you and for me, sinners. And he died on that cross for you. And he died because he loves you and he wants to bring forgiveness to you. And he wants to give you the hope of eternal life in right relationship with the Father. It only comes through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. He's not a way. He's the way. And today is the day of salvation. If that's you, will you pray this prayer that Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. And I believe you died on the cross for me and you rose again. You're alive speaking to my heart. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for your love. I want to walk with you and know you. I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name. And if anybody by chance prayed that, if you're here in this building, come talk to me after the service. If you're listening on live stream or on the radio later, will you call the church and tell us the decision that you made? But just another minute and we'll be done because I know it's getting late. And maybe you're here and you've been asleep spiritually. Maybe you, you've been pulled into the world way too much. Maybe you've even accepted what culture says is right and good, making excuses, and you know what the Word of God has to say. And the Lord gives us His ways and His Word because He does love us. And He desires for us to experience that abundant life and to live in truth, not in deception and darkness and bondage, because that's what sin does. And maybe you're here and you think, Lord, I've been asleep spiritually. It's time to awake. 
for you who are thinking that, Father, I just pray for them. And for all of us, that we would stay awake spiritually and take heed to ourselves, be cultivating that deep personal relationship with you and growing in your word. And Lord, continuing, just as we've talked about, abiding in you and in your love and in your word. But Lord, we don't want to go to sleep because we know the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So Lord, help us to be awake every single day, to be used of you and to produce fruit for your glory and for your purposes. I pray you take everyone home safely now. Bless our evening and the rest of our week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God is good.